You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and guess what? I am not a numbers person. So it's a good thing Dr. Selena Fisk joined me recently to set me on the right track. Selena has written a terrific book called I'm Not a Numbers Person, How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World. And in it, she does exactly that. Her book is packed with amazing insight, tips, and ideas that will help all of us jump onto this freight train of information that's storming through our world. And the best part, she talks about it just as well as she writes about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Selena Fisk. Dr. Selena Fisk, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks for having me, David. It's an absolute pleasure, Selena. Look, before we hit record, I shared with you my the, how enormous this topic is to me. Your book is fantastic. The concepts are terrific, but geez, it's a big topic. So I've got some questions for you, but they might turn out to be lame, and I'll very much be led where you take this conversation because you've got a really clear handle on it all. You've written a terrific book. It's called. I'm not a numbers person, which is me, uh, how to make good decisions in a data-rich world. It's a terrific, obviously, exponentially growing industry that you've found yourself in. I'm really interested, though, how did you get started and what's your mission in all of this? Yeah, great question. I guess I actually started out as a teacher. So I was a secondary school maths and phys ed teacher, actually, for a number of years. And I went to teach in the UK and the schools over there are really data-driven and they were really different to what I had experienced in Australia. And I just started to think about the ways that data could be used really positively and ways that it could be used to really benefit the community and benefit individuals. And so when I came back from the UK, I actually wanted to do a bit more research. So I started on my doctoral journey, started doing some different roles that looked at in schools, student data and performance. And I guess it's kind of just grown from there. I, I My first two books that I wrote were for educators, but you know, I, I left the classroom two and a half years ago and I now work with a whole range of different organizations as a data storyteller. So you know, in terms of my mission and what I hope to get out of it, for me, it's making the numbers more accessible to people and just helping them be able to engage with them, ask really good questions and just use them to have a greater impact on you know, the, their clients, their teams, and the organizations that they work with. You know, we share that in common, actually, Selena. I started my career as a high school teacher. I was an English teacher, though, hence my massive misunderstanding or non-understanding of your topic. And I, too, worked in the UK. I, I was just there for a year, like most teachers have at some point. And I found that experience incredibly rich, not the same way you did. I didn't stumble across the data thing because I guess my English teacher brain just wasn't attuned to that. But it's such a different place to teach, such a different place for students to learn. It's an incredible experience for a young teacher to go and do that. Hey, you mentioned in the title of your book, the, the concept around data rich world, and, and that's obvious to even the most uninformed of observers. But with your expertise, you must have a really thorough understanding of the extent to which the availability of data is increasing exponentially, I presume. Tell us a little bit about that. Help us understand what we all kind of inherently know to be true. 
Yes. So I guess in the work that I do with a range of different organisations, what's really striking to me is just the vast amounts of data that people have got access to. Um, I often joke that I don't get invited into organisations to help them find more data. Um, (laughs) It's usually we have so much of it um, and we're not necessarily using it in the best ways that we can. And I think that's just an evolution of you know, technology, the rise in accountability, there's a lot of different factors that have contributed to the amount of data. But I think progressively over time, there's been this spiraling expectation on people to use it. And more and more data has almost been stacked on top of one another over time. And often leaders, um, employees, organizations more broadly haven't necessarily had the time or space to zoom out a little bit and think, well, what do we actually care about? What matters to us? So often the conversations I'm having with leaders is, well, you tell me what matters to you. Like I'm not going into organizations telling them what they should be caring about, you know, throwing a few ideas around every now and then. But ultimately it's you in whatever role you're doing thinking, well, what do I care about in my role, in my team, in my organization? And it's kind of being able to distill or filter down from those massive amounts of data into the pieces and the data sets, I guess, that actually matter to us. I bet that's a really tricky question to ask an organization. When they engage you, I I guess like so many engagements of consultants, they're hoping that you just come in and solve all of their problems. But really, you start by asking them the most fundamental question, which is what do you want to learn from this data? You've got all of this data. I guess that they might not have even given any thought to what they want to know. I guess sometimes they might be asking you, well, you tell us, what can we know from this data? We've gathered this whole chunk of information. We want to make sense of it, but we don't even know what we want out of it. Does that happen often? Yeah. And there's kind of two different investigations that you can do. You can have a look at it through the lens of an explanatory analysis. So if you're looking to explain something, then it's pretty easy to think, okay, well, if I'm interested in this particular area of inquiry or this area of my business, these are the data sets that are going to give me some really good information on that. Other times I work with teams and it's a real exploratory analysis. So it really is kind of that big picture thinking of, you know, starting with what do we actually have? You know, I worked with a team recently and they came up with, in about 10 minutes, they came up with 46 different types of data that they've got available. And that wasn't even the sub parts and categories, you know, and it's not realistic to expect that somebody or a team could action and work with 48 different sets. So yeah, it is very much about me working with them to help them work out what's important. And even within the same organization, different teams have different priorities. You know, you work with a marketing team versus a sales team in an organization and different metrics mean different things to those two teams and rightly so, but there's no point in them looking at information that say the executive team look at or at that level if they can't control or they don't have much influence over those metrics, you know, in the work that they do. So it is very tailored to the organization, the teams that they're a part of and what, you know, what they're prioritizing more broadly. As I say, even those like me who are very uninformed in this space, we know from our experience with the world that data is becoming increasingly important. And it's it's a it's a big part of our life, even if we're not active users or understanders of it. For example, Amazon continues to suggest books to me after I've finished a book that that I, I've bought recently. Uh, the algorithms on Facebook continue to show me information that they think I might be interested in, same with Twitter and everything else. So the 
The world is so rich with data, even if you're not looking to understand it, you know that it's there and you know that it's having an effect on all of our lives. But let's start, I mean, we're not starting. Let's talk about the most obvious question. What is data? When you talk about managing and understanding and acting on data, what are the different types of data we could be talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, the examples you just shared, and I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about Netflix that has recently been recommending TV shows and movies that I've already seen, which is quite huh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's not predicting my watching patterns very well. So some data is used to predict future behaviour or client behaviour, and that can be useful. But in terms of that broader picture of, well, what does data actually mean? You know, when I use the word data, I'm referring to both qualitative and quantitative types of information. So we usually use or we refer to quantitative measures more often than qualitative. Quantitative are largely numerical and they're great and they're easy to use in some ways because they easy to graph, we can visualize them, we can kind of see a trend, you know, when in the um, you know, when you're watching the news at night, you can see a graph of say your median house prices in your area and you can make sense of that pretty easily. So that's there's a lot of different metrics available for different um, people depending on what they what role they kind of do. There's also another whole data set which is qualitative information. So that could be kind of categorical information. But more often than not, in most of the organizations that I work in, they are short response or extended response text-based information. And it's really useful because it kind of gives you the why or the explanation of what the numbers mean. So you think, you know, if you want to go out for dinner tonight and you look up Google and you're looking up some restaurants in your local area, the first thing that might get your attention, well, for me, it does anyway, is the score out of five. So if I'm looking at two restaurants, one's a 4.5, one's a 3.8, I'm probably going to go with the 4.5. But if I'm wanting to know a bit more about why people have rated that one so highly or why another one is quite low, I can read the reviews. And so that's the qualitative information. So quantitative is really useful because we can summarize it and we can get the score out of five, but it doesn't tell us why people have actually answered in that way. So it's really useful, particularly with like client perceptions, employee perceptions, their experience within the organization. The downside of qualitative information is it's really time-consuming to process and to analyze. So if you think about if you work for you know a, a big organization and there's thousands of reviews of your company or business on Google, to analyze that, you would literally have to have somebody almost manually reading through and processing what those challenges are and why people were giving one or two stars or what the really great things are and why they're giving five. So you know, in a perfect world, organizations are harnessing both qualitative and quantitative data. But yeah, I'm acutely aware that qualitative use and analysis is really time consuming. It can be pretty tricky. Oh, there's so much there. I, I even, even that part of your book where we talked about qualitative and quantitative data, so fascinating. And it got me thinking, you know, I wonder, and you can talk about this if you like, if we maybe overuse the quantitative data because it's easier to process, we can develop algorithms that will process that and give a restaurant a score out of five really easily. Whereas the qualitative data, as you say, is much more time consuming to manage. So you can talk about that if you like. But the other thing I thought while I was reading that part of your book was those word clouds that you did speak about in your book are almost an attempt 
to quantify the qualitative. They give us a numeric value on qualitative responses by making bigger the words that are used most often in short or long answer responses. Yeah, absolutely. With that, with the word cloud idea, you're right. It absolutely does that because it essentially counts the number of times that a word or a phrase has been used and then it enlarges the text based on the the prevalence of the word. You know, even when qualitative data is used in research, one of the a common way of processing qualitative data is through thematic analysis, and it's where you look for themes. And I talk about this a little bit in my book. But again, it's the same thing. It's essentially looking through for those big overarching themes that appear regularly through the responses. But in a write-up, in a report, you're not going to be talking about the one person who had this single experience that wasn't the same experience of other people, you're going to be talking about the thing that 20 people experienced or talked about. And I was doing one for a a law firm recently, you know, and the client comments were all about the real and kind of caring nature, the personalized service, the follow-up phone calls, and they were the number one themes that came through. So the one person who's written a bad review and said, I contacted the office, I didn't get any follow-up, nobody responded to me, you know, that literally probably is a one-off in that instance. And so you're not going to spend time talking about and analyzing that single response. You're looking at those really kind of, yeah, the ones that come up a lot. I guess the other part of that, you know, and you mentioned right at the start of that question, you know, do we default to quantitative? And I think absolutely we do in terms of the visuals. You think about the news, for example, um, you think about like a crime report. And if there's a there's some statistics that talk about the crime in your area that's increasing, decreasing, staying the same, whatever the quantitative value of that is, the qualitative is the narrative. The qualitative really gives the perception of people, the explanation. So, you know, I my big thing's data storytelling. I, I say I'm a data storyteller. And for me, you can't ever just talk about data without the narrative and without that human element really permeating through the conversation because, you know, ultimately I reckon we can use data to have really positive impacts on people and communities. And we can't do that if we remove the human element from it. I love that term, a data storyteller. It's so emphatic. It really creates an image in my mind of of the craft that you're pursuing. It's it's very good. It's a very good turn of phrase. Hey, you just reminded me before when we we're talking about qualitative and quantitative, which is such a powerful concept all in itself. And it's just one of an armful of powerful concepts that are in your book. I find myself trying to trick myself with the use of qualitative and quantitative data. For example, if I want to read a book or I, I'm thinking about reading a book or watching a movie because it's been recommended to me and I, I see it, if I search for it, I find the title, but it's got a review in Rotten Tomatoes of 67% or on Amazon Books, uh, you know, you know, two and a half out of five or, or whatever it might be. I think, okay, well, that's, you know, I guess subconsciously, I think, all right, well, that's the quantitative review. And then I go into the qualitative stuff and actually read the things that people have written because I'm hoping that the quantitative doesn't apply to me because maybe what some people dislike about this book are things that I really like about a book. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to trick my bias or my subconscious bias that you also talk about in the book. Yeah, it's interesting. So confirmation bias is one that I talk about, and that's where we often seek out the data that confirms the belief or perspective that we already have. So it's interesting, you know, if you didn't want to read the book, 
or didn't want to go to the movie, you might stop at the 67% or whatever it is on Rotten Tomatoes and go, well, that's confirmation that this is probably And you was no good anyway. You know, something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whereas if you were looking for evidence or for a reason as to why you should pick it up, then yeah, you might go digging that little bit further. So confirmation bias is, you know, one of the biases that I talk about in my book. And, you know, unfortunately, we can't completely remove those biases, but it's having about having really clear structures and plans. And I guess the confidence to try and look at the data objectively and try and take that emotion out of it, while we can't do that completely, even just being aware of the biases that we come with when we're looking at data can be a really useful kind of frame and a conversation for a team when they're looking at a data set, you know, even kind of flagging what are some of the things that we're looking for you know, and actually, what's the flip of that? So Adam Grant talks about in in his book, Think Again, he talks about thinking like a scientist. And he says, you know, scientists have a hypothesis and they kind of look for data to test their hypothesis, but they actually look for the other side as well. They look for data that would actually disprove their hypothesis. And when they can't find that, that's kind of when they can settle on their findings. So yeah, it's not just looking for the information or the data that confirms what we think, but also, you know, what's the alternate view? And when we can actively seek that out, that's one of the ways that we can reduce the impact of confirmation bias. Talking about data that confirms what we think, we know from so many reports, and I remember that great documentary, The Social Dilemma, really highlighted it for me, the extent to which social media platforms will send information our way that we know that it thinks from our past behavior that we already like and we already believe. And in fact, that's become the way many people consume news is just to keep reading stuff that confirms what they already think because it gives you that little dopamine hit to get a little bit more information that confirms what I already think because it makes me feel like I'm already right and all my worldviews are correct. It's really one of the one of the underbellies of big data the idea that we've started to use it in this very early evolution of of humans experience with big data we've started to use it to almost divide us on every conceivable issue yeah absolutely and you know social media we end up almost in like our own little echo chamber that we've created and you know yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in Australia, there's a federal election coming up and, you know, the the things in my social media feed align with my political views. And I think, okay, well, of course, everybody's mm. going to vote in this way because everything I'm hearing, you know, re- I guess Confirms reinforces that. my view. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's just knowing that, like part of it is actually just being mm. aware yeah. of the way in which we're fed that information. I don't think that that's going to change in the near future at all. But being aware of that means that we can then go and actively seek out our own independent information as well. So again, going back to Adam Grant work around having a hypothesis and holding, you know, a view or a way of thinking really quite like lightly and being open to changing the way that we think, you know, going out and seeking out independent or independent information or information from other sources is a really good way of kind of counteracting that very kind of one-way street echo chamber that we're in on social media. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. I'm talking to Dr. Selena Fisk and we're, we're talking about her book, I'm Not a Numbers Person, How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World. And as we're talking, Selena, and I'm watching the clock and thinking, geez, I wish I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. 
because it's just reminding me of just how full your book is of really, really important concepts. And I'm not a numbers person. I am the title of your book. And for me, it really brought things to life. So if you're enjoying this conversation, I very strongly recommend you grab a copy of this book because it is just so rich. And as much as we'll try here, we won't do it the justice it deserves. Hey, Selena, one of the things that I really enjoyed, you know, one of the 150 things I really enjoyed about your book was you spoke about, I think you used the word evolutions. There are three evolutions of data or access to data. And the first was where it was very centralized and then it moved towards the second and the third evolutions. Could you tell us a little bit about those evolutions and where we're at at the moment? Yeah, so they're the different generations of business intelligence. So click has done a fair bit of industry research and, you know, there's certainly been an evolution in this space in the increase and in accessibility of data in organisations specifically. The first generation of business intelligence was where, you know, it, the data that was held by the organisation was held by potentially your IT team and or your CEO, maybe one or two other people. But if you wanted to know anything about the insights or the information that was kind of coming in, you essentially had to ask and you may or may not have been given permission. You know, you basically ask, you get a report back and then you start to think about what all that means. We kind of then progressed to the second generation of business intelligence. And in that second generation, data became used or it's being used by more people. It might be used by more broadly the executive team or members of the C-suite, for example. It might be that you've got a couple of analysts that work in your role, but it wasn't available in the second generation of business intelligence. The data wasn't available to every person in the organization all the time. And so- Senior access to the system. Yeah, absolutely. And it was on a kind of needs to know basis. Mm. And I should have said at the beginning, you know, there's, there's organizations that are, this is kind of a continuum and there's organizations and even teams within organizations that sit at really different positions on this continuum. And sometimes I work with people in that second generation of business intelligence. But what we're seeing is that there's this shift towards the third generation of business intelligence. And that's where data is made available to everybody in the organization and they're trusted to use the data in a responsible manner. But essentially, it's it's available to them. So it's decentralized the data a lot. You might still have analysts in your team that are curating really good reports and looking for insights and communicating some of that information, but every person in the organization would have access to the information that they need. So one of the terms or one of the things that that's called is a data democracy. There's sometimes a bit of a fear by leaders about, you know, well, what will happen if we make this data available to everybody? But the flip side of that is when organizations are still moving towards that data democracy, data is often stored in silos. So, you know, I used the example before of a sales and a marketing team. I was working with an organization in the US and the sales data was not available to the marketing team and vice versa. So they were working towards the same mission, had the same goals, wanted to achieve the same things. And yet, there was really useful sales information that could have helped the marketing team, but they didn't have access to that. They weren't privy to it. So yeah, we're, as I say, we're all kind of on that continuum and moving towards that third generation of business intelligence, but we're definitely not there yet. And I guess there are, there are tools available in organizations now. Like I think of Power BI, which enables exactly as you're talking about the third generation rather than evolution, as I wrongly said, 
of use of data, which is available to everyone. And those tools, I don't know whether those tools kind of prompted that generation or they're in response to our move towards that generation where data is is more accessible to everyone. But that evolution, it makes so much sense. Now, I'm just frantically looking through my notes and I can't find it, but you'll know the answer. Along with those organizational evolutions or or generations, there's also the individual kind of evolution that I need to go through. And I can't find it in my notes, but I know that it starts at stasis where I kind of don't do anything. And then it moves all the way up to active use and decision-making. Can you talk about that personal evolution? Because I think it's really important to draw this alongside what we just talked about in terms of the organizational evolution. So your organization might be making data more available to you as an individual, not in the sales team or not in the IT team. But at the same time, we all have a personal journey to go through in our understanding and use of data. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, right. So the language you've used is actually a bit of a mix of two of my models. I'll talk about the one, I guess, that is more useful as a personal reflection tool of kind of where you're at. And that starts with the first level being an unconscious user of data. Yes. Sort me out here, Selena. Your book is so complex for a tiny little mind like mine. Thank you. So an unconscious user, you know, somebody like that's probably not listening to this podcast. (laughs) Um, They're not picking up a copy of my book. They're pretty oblivious to the amount of data that's around. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. When people move to the next stage, which is kind of a conscious user, that's where they, you know, they start to be aware of it. And you kind of preface this conversation with, you know, I feel like I'm not a numbers person. So that might be somebody like you who kind of thinks, okay, well, this is not necessarily my strength, but it's I'm aware that it exists. The third level then, you know, people progress from that stage to being a casual user. So they kind of start to play with different ideas or start to get a bit more of an understanding. They become more aware then, so that's stage four, as to how that might actually impact their work, how it might be relevant to them in their life, how they might actually start to use it in a really productive and, and great way. The second highest level then is an active user of data. So that's somebody who's giving it a go, you know, looking at the information that they've got access to when they're starting to think about, well, what are the actions that I'm going to take as a result of knowing that information? And the final one is a reflective user. So somebody who individually is at that highest level is taking action and then they're reflecting on, well, you know, I took that action or I did this thing. Does that actually have an impact or did that matter or did that change the situation? So as we kind of progress up the level and understanding of the numbers, the attachment, I guess, to action increases as well. So we have to know the numbers. We have to understand them before we can act. So that's kind of why action, you know, is at the end of the the continuum or the steps. But I guess the other thing that's worth saying is this is never, you know, it's never a perfect model. You know, humans are (laughs) complex individuals it's never a, if the data says this, I'm going to do this and therefore this will be my outcome. If that was as easy as it, you know, if that, if that was reality, you know, our jobs would be a lot easier and we'd be a lot less stressed. So it is totally okay to almost be in an action research cycle of this is the data I've got. This is the hypothesis that I've got around what might help improve the situation. I'm going to try this thing out. But if that doesn't work or it doesn't work all the time or with every client or with every team in your organization, it's absolutely okay to come back and review it and think, okay, you know, maybe that worked half the time or it worked for these people, but not these people. 
now what can I do next? And I guess that's one of the things I see when people start to take action for the first time based on data, there's really there's a big fear sometimes that they'll get it wrong. And yeah, I guess it's important to know and be able to articulate to the people that we work with that it doesn't always just have to be a quick fix or it doesn't have to work the first time every time for every person. And I think it's really nice to know, you know, it's 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 kind of obvious and it underpins so much of our development as humans, but it's nice to know there are stages to go through in our development of our, our understanding and use of data. That's reassuring for someone who's who's on that journey, who gets that it's really important, but doesn't have confidence in their skills and ability and experience in accessing data and making sense of it and doing something with that. It's nice to know there's a there's an evolution there as, a, as an individual as well. Hey, one of the things that you emphasize really well in your book is the use of visuals to represent data. And that merges really strongly with your identity as a data storyteller. Now, we haven't got time, obviously, and a podcast is not the best place to be talking in depth about visuals, but maybe give us some of the key tenets of creating effective visuals that help you as a data storyteller. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, absolutely applies here. Sure, yeah. yeah. You know, if I was to give you a, an epic spreadsheet of thousands of data points. <laughs> Which so many people do, and they think that's an acceptable way of sharing data. That must be one of your jobs as a consultant in this space, just to clarify that misunderstanding. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my focus is on the storytelling and the action with the data. If you give somebody a huge spreadsheet with millions of data points and no visuals, they're going to get stuck in and bogged down in, well, what do those numbers actually mean? And you don't want them in that space. You actually want them thinking about the actions and what that means for them and their team or their organisation. So visuals are great because they reduce the cognitive load of being able to identify the themes or the trends in the data. It means that, you know, rather than me looking down a spreadsheet or looking different kind of cells with all different values in it, if I have to do that, I'm thinking about, I have to think about every single number yeah, and what does it mean? Detail. Yeah, absolutely. What does it mean compared to the stuff on either side, above it, below it? And what if I miss something? Whereas if we can visualize it, it can just make those trends more easily identifiable and they're clearer. So, you know, you think about like crypto cryptocurrency you know there are that crypto is changing every second the value of crypto is changing every second whereas you could look at a trend line for crypto over the last month or six months and there are potentially millions of data points that are feeding into that one visualization but it still gives you a really clear idea of what that cryptocurrency is actually doing and has been doing over that period so yeah it's really important because we want people as i say to be getting to that point of action a couple of things, I guess, in terms of like your question around what's some tips on it. One of the things is, I guess, it's really important that we actually understand what visualization is useful at different times. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that hate pie charts. Pie charts, I reckon pie charts can be pretty useful, but, you know, there's things that you need to kind of be aware of, like the 3D visual that Word and Excel and that tried to do that's not particularly useful because it can kind of skew the view and it doesn't make it really clear. Yeah. And, you know, if you're look, trying to look at 10 things and how they make up a whole, then a pie chart's not useful. But if you're just looking at two or three things, then it can be. And as I said, there's a lot of pie chart haters out there. So <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. But, you know, things like a box and whisker plot, 
we don't see them often in the media, for example. So in on the media, in the, the news, when we watch the news at night, we often see line graphs, bar charts. They're really common visualizations that we see. So if you're going to roll out a box and whisker plot, for example, they're super useful because they can show you the spread of your data. So they give you more information than just an overall average or summary. But there are plenty of people that don't know how to read box plots or box and whisker plots. And so it's just about knowing your audience and knowing their skills. And so choosing a visualization that really kind of suits your data, but also is actually going to land with your audience, because there's no point asking people to act on a box and whisker plot if they don't know how to read it in the first place. Hey, we're quickly running out of time, uh, but this is just such a, you do such a fantastic job of bringing to life what is a, a really dense subject. Before I get you to give your top three tips to help our listeners remember the key parts of this conversation, I want to ask you a question about politics. We're recording this just before the Australian federal election. It'll go live after the federal election. So very excitedly, you'll all know the result by the time you're hearing this. But as an expert in data, I'm really interested in your take on some of the games and shenanigans that are played with the information we receive, not just from the politicians, but from the news coverage of the political events and the election campaign as well. What do you see? Geez, that's a good question. And yeah, while we are in this election season, you know, this is true, I think, of any data at any stage. We can Data can be manipulated. We know that. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's really important that people can actually engage and ask good questions about the data so that they've got a better understanding of what might have contributed to that information. I guess it's, for me, what I often see is that journalists, media organisations, you know, they'll kind of handpick the data that suits their agenda. So whoever you follow, you know, the narrative that you might hear on one news station might be completely different to the narrative that you hear on another, and they might handpick a completely different piece of information to try and almost make their point. So again, you know, it's partly about awareness, and it's also partly about knowing, well, knowing the data, knowing some of those tricks, but back to what we were saying before about the echo chamber, you know, being aware that Different people are trying to push their own agenda or have their own perspectives and they will use the information that best suits them sometimes, particularly in journalism. Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) But it is about, again, going out and trying to find independently. Like if you want to know more about something, go and do your own research from independent sources or go back to the original source and do your own thinking about it. So, yeah, it's a hard one. Hey, I love that little story you told in your book about when you were a maths teacher you used to teach your students how data can be distorted to visually represent something that it's not. For the example you gave was a survey of kids who liked Coke as opposed to kids who liked Pepsi. Now, if the story you wanted to tell was there are a lot more kids like Coke than Pepsi, you could configure the graph to look a certain way. But if the number is really, I think the example you said was you know, 15 versus 17, Pepsi and Coke, you could distort the y-axis to make it look like there was a tiny little gap or a huge gap, depending on the story you wanted to tell. I just think it's terrific that as a maths teacher, you were trying to demonstrate to kids who by now are are voting age, just how easily they can be fooled by those kind of visuals. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, back to the more people understand this and can identify it and pick it in the visualizations that they're given, the better. The other one, I know we're running out of time, but the other one that I used to talk to kids about a lot and it's in my book is the correlation versus causation mm-hmm. idea. 
So there was a study years ago that came out of Japan saying something along the lines of men who rubbed the salt on their hand from their hands after they ate McDonald's chips on when they rubbed their head afterwards, they were less likely to go bald. And so that was a really interesting conversation to have with 14 and 15 year old kids in a classroom say, well, does McDonald's chip salt <laughs> cause, you know, a reduction in balding or is this just some random correlation that they've come up with along the way? So, yeah, really important distinction to be made as well, particularly when we're being fed all these bits of information. Just because something correlates, it doesn't mean that it causes it. So, yeah, it's important to know the difference. Correlation and causation, another really powerful concept that's covered so well in your book, all right, Selena, let's hit me and the listeners with the, the three things that we're going to remember all of your wisdom by. All right. Well, I reckon the first one is that, you know, the use of data is no longer just one person's job or the team of analysts in your organization. So this is about building the skill of everybody. So everybody can become a numbers person, whatever, you know, way, shape or format looks like. The second one is around really knowing what matters to you, being able to articulate, you know, what are those data sets that matter? What are the things that you place value on? What are you going to pay attention to? What are you going to listen to? Because when you've got that clarity, a lot of the decision-making that comes after becomes easier. And the final part, you know, as I said before, I say I'm a data storyteller. And for me, it is absolutely about that human element alongside the data and the numbers. And it's, you know, what does this actually mean for people and their individual experiences and their reality And so we always need to be talking about people and humans when we're talking about the data. That's my three. That is fantastic stuff. Dr. Selena Fisk, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's been great chat. And that was Dr. Selena Fisk. What a topic. As a non-numbers person, I was totally enthralled by both her book and our conversation. Those top three tips again. Number one, the use of data is everyone's job. We can all be a numbers person. Long gone are the days where the information sits with a tiny number of staff or at a certain senior level of an organization. Number two, to use data effectively, you've got to be clear on what you're looking for, what matters to you, your organization. And number three, remember the human element. What's in it for people? Think of yourself as a human storyteller where data is used to support the narrative. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Selena on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.